Calvary, Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. Satan is vanquished and Jesus is king. And it is well with my soul. But this week, my mind, apart from my soul, was not well. Because I have to preach to you, and I chose to preach to you out of a passage that is difficult. In this passage, we see ourselves, we see Christ, we see our struggles, and we see beautiful, beautiful reassurance. And so today, would you open up your Bibles to Matthew 4? We're going to read from verses 1 to 11. Again, Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Some of you are tempted by pornography. Some of you to steal, to lie, to lust. You're tempted by cars, by women, by men. You're tempted with sex. You're tempted with sex outside of marriage. You're tempted by your work, by your coworkers. You're tempted out of your emotions, pride, laziness, joy. The list never ends. Adam and Eve were tempted. Joseph was tempted. Samson was tempted. David, Judas, Ananias, and Sapphira, and a couple of lads in the New Testament named Demis and Diotrephes. And I'd be willing to go so far to say that some of you, before this sermon is over, will fall into temptation. Your mind will drift. Your eyes will wander and see that attractive man or that attractive woman. And the rest goes from there. Something will get you. If not in here, then definitely outside there. That's just the reality of where we live and the time we live in. And I'm saying you, 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 but it's also me, me, me. See, I'm in the same boat as all of you. I'm rowing down that stream of temptation, and I'm fighting the fight every single day. It doesn't get any easier. For me, I struggle with lust. I struggle with anger. 
I struggle with fear, and I struggle with putting God at the forefront of everything in my life. So I'm not unlike you. Just because I'm here preaching does not mean I'm a super Christian. Doesn't mean I'm any different from you guys. We all sit in the boat of temptation, and we all struggle. And in this passage, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus in what could be one of his most weakest moments in ministry, in a state of pure obedience to God. And this, this is good. The fact that Christ, through his temptation, could remain obedient to God is amazing. And we're going to look at that in just a few moments. In every way, shape, and form, he remained obedient. In ministry, in temptation, and even death. And so I've called my sermon, Jesus, Our Obedient Savior. And at the end of the day, I want you to walk away understanding something. I want you to know that Jesus' obedience under temptation is a good, good thing. Every one of us, like I said, will face temptation. And every one of us is going to fail. I'm I'm sorry to be so honest with you, but we're going to fail in the teeth of our exertions. But Jesus never failed. And I'm going to preach to you today. Right? I'm, I'm going to preach because tomorrow you're going to wake up, you're going to get ready for the day, you're going to go to school, you're going to go to work, and you're going you're to you're get hit with temptation. You're going to get hit with struggles. And as hard as it is for me to say this, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. There's only one who is perfect, Christ. In every way, shape, and form, he was tempted. And it is this reason why you can run to him again And again, and again, and again, and again, and again, when you fail. He's done everything right, out of the right heart, from the right motives, with the right intentions. And that is why you can run again, and again, and again to him. But before we actually dive into the text, I want to tell you what this text is not, all right? This text is not a blueprint that Matthew's giving us on how we fight temptation, all right? It's not a blueprint. It's not, it doesn't reveal the secrets for performing an exorcism. It doesn't talk about our personal spiritual warfare. And it definitely does not affirm that when we're hungry, angelic beings will come and give us food. So that's not what this text is about, all right? But stay with me. There's three important themes in this text that we just got to clear away before we actually dive in. First is obedience. And you'll see that all throughout this uh, throughout the sermon. Second, it's Jesus uh, and his link to Israel and you know, how they failed, but yet he succeeded. I'll, I'll explain that in a bit. And third, it's, it's preparation. First, obedience. Right? The Messiah, he needed to be obedient to the will of the Father. And if you think about this logically, right? if you think about if Christ could have been remotely disobedient at this point in his ministry, then everything else falls apart, Right? Everything falls apart. It's just as well we close the book up and say, right, just a fairy tale. So he needed to be obedient at the beginning. And I'll explain that in a bit. And we see this divine level of obedience throughout all the Gospels. It's not just here. This theme courses through Jesus' ministry like blood in our veins. For example, in John 4, he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And again, Hebrews 9, I have come to do your will. And then there's Matthew 3.15. There's John 5.30, John 6.38, John 14.31. Guys, it's all over the place. All over the place. Second, his link to Israel. Now, this is big, okay? 
We don't see it directly from the text itself, but Matthew is playing on this historical narrative that happened a long time ago. All right, so let, let me explain something. Okay? God, in his sovereignty, wanted to raise up a people for himself. He chose the Israelites out of all the nations on the earth. At a certain point in Israel's history, they found themselves under Egyptian captivity for 400 years. And God, through Moses, rescues his people, brings them up out of Egypt, and on the way to Canaan, or what's better known as the Promised Land, Israel fails to trust in God and instead rebels against him. And so God sends them out into the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of preparation and testing before they go into Canaan. Now, here's the condition. Should Israel remain obedient and faithful during this time, God would have poured out some pretty awesome covenantal blessings upon them. But if they even remotely disobeyed, then they would encounter some curses. In the end, we, we see the story from the beginning to the end. Israel disobeys, and they miss out on these covenantal blessings, which would have, in fact, had huge implications for the entire world. As one theologian highlights, it was for this reason that the Son of God began his incarnate ministry in the wilderness. He came to do what Israel failed to do. And if we want to continue playing this parallel game between Jesus and Israel, we can't overlook just one small detail, right? Let's not, let's not forget that Israel, after being rescued up out of Egypt, passes through the waters of the Red Sea and then goes in this 40-year period of testing. Jesus also comes up out of Egypt. You read that earlier in Matthew. And he passes through the waters of his baptism and then is drove out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tested and prepared. The parallels, they're everywhere. You, you can't ignore them. And here's the thing. Israel was supposed to represent God to the world, but it, it couldn't. It couldn't because of its disobedience and its sin nature. And this is what Matthew is getting at. When he calls Jesus the true Israel, he's showing that where Israel failed, Jesus, yeah, where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. I almost got tongue-tied there. Right? Israel failed to secure these covenantal blessings that God wanted to bestow upon them. Jesus succeeded, and through Jesus, the whole world is then blessed. And so verse 1 and 2, it tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. I, I'm, I like how Luke puts it in his gospel as well. He says that Jesus was cast out into the, into the wilderness. And all Luke is doing here is he's describing this sense of urgency or this importance of Jesus going into the wilderness. There's a reason why he was going out. It wasn't just for the sake of fasting and having a good time and just being entertained by desert creatures. No, he, he was going out to prepare for ministry. And much like the Israelites did before entering the promised land, so now Jesus had to do before he went out into his ministry. And this, this isn't an uncommon theme in Scripture, right? We see this all over the place. In fact, it's quite common to see people going out into the wilderness to spend time before God gives them further instructions. Moses, right? Moses, when he went up on Mount Sinai, he spent 40 days and nights before the Lord, fasting and preparing before God gave him the law. Elijah, right? Elijah was traveling through the wilderness to the desert town of Horeb before uh, and during that time, he was fasting and praying, and then he received further instructions from God. And as I just mentioned, we have the Israelites who were sent into the wilderness for 40 years, right? And so this, this is what Matthew's doing. He's showing his audience that much like how Israel needed to prepare for their mission into Canaan, Jesus, too, needed to prepare before he went on, on his mission. 
The only difference is that Jesus' mission was far greater than Israel's mission. And this is why Jesus, at the end of his ministry, would cry out in Matthew 26, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. He learned obedience at the beginning, so at the end of his ministry, he would be obedient to what God was calling him to do. The other thing we've got to consider is this, all right? Through this passage, Matthew also wants to show his audience that the religious heritage is not good enough for them to get a pass. For us, <laughs> for us, I want to remind us that your past does not equate to victory. And not only that, your bank account doesn't give you a pass, your heritage, your morality, your grandparents, your preacher, Pastor Steve, the elders, Calvary Baptist Church, none of those give you a pass. You need Jesus, every single one of you. I need Jesus. Every day we need Jesus. I want to take a time out here for a second, right? I want to address something that as I prepared for the sermon, it kind of came to my mind and it just, it blew my mind, all right? So in the beginning, no, no. (laughs) At the beginning of chapter four, you see, you might see a title called, Uh, The temptation of Jesus, or the temptation of Christ, or Jesus' temptation, or the wilderness temptations, something like that, right? And I think that title is a little misleading, depending on how you look at the text, right? If you see it from Satan's perspective, then it's all about tempting Christ. It's all about tempting Christ. But if you flip it around and you look at it from a divine, from God's perspective, then it's about testing. It's about maturation, I'll come back to that. God tested Abraham. David asked God to test and know his heart. And the psalmist also tells us in Psalm 11 that the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Testing is for our benefit. Temptation to our detriment. Testing is to God as temptation is to sin. When we are tempted, James says in James 1, no one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so, like I said, from the perspective of Satan, Jesus is indeed being tempted, but flip it around and look at it from God's perspective. He's being tested, and he's preparing Jesus for what's to come. And yes, we can't omit the the fact that Satan was being used as the agent for which the temptations came, but it was ultimately through Christ's temptation that he was being tested. Which brings us to his first test. Matthew 4, verse 3. Hunger. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You know, this whole conversation is really something if you think about it. I never want to give more attention to the demonic than what I have to, but we need to look at how just brazen and cocky this conversation is, right? In John 1, we read that through Jesus, all things were made. There was nothing made that has not been made. Things seen and unseen were created through him, by him, and for him, including Satan. Now, I don't want to get too much into this, but Satan, or, or, or what he's commonly known as Lucifer, was and is a created angel who occupied one of the highest offices in the angelic order. He's described by Ezekiel in, in chapter 28 as the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. But let's, let's not get all caught up in this, all right? Yes, he's described as the model of perfection and beauty, 
but he was created by the one who is both perfect and wise and beautiful. This creation was created by God. And think about this. Here he is, this mere creation, coming before the creator and tempting him. So when you look at it from that perspective, the creation or the created tempting the creator, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a crazy conversation to be even having. And it's not like Satan didn't know who Jesus was. All right? He tried to kill him using Herod. He tried using Judas. He tried with the cross, and he didn't succeed. Praise the Lord. Again, what does he say? If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, this first temptation, remember I talked to you about the link with Israel? This parallels Israel's first true moment of temptation in the wilderness. And you can imagine how you would have this necessity of food coming upon you as you're rescued up out of Egypt. You have two million people. You have a man leading you. And you're like, hey, Moses, where's the food? Right? The the desert isn't exactly a food-making factory. But let's not forget something. When you read in Deuteronomy 8, God led the Israelites into the wilderness So that, that's key, so that they could be tested. In Exodus 16.2, we get more insight into the story. The Israelites start complaining and grumbling against Moses that they have no food. And so Moses prays and asks God to provide, and God provides manna. And not quite content with manna, the Israelites start complaining again. They're like, we're sick of manna, give us meat. And it's almost like God says to them, you want meat? I'm going to give you meat. This is all out of Numbers 11, by the way. I'm not going to give you meat for one day or two days or 10 days or 15 or 20. I'm going to give you meat enough till it's coming out of your nostrils. Guys, there's, there's humor in scripture. That's actually inspired by God to say that meat will come out of your nostrils. But Jesus neither complained nor petitioned God. He instead he turned his attention back to scripture. It is written, man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now what Jesus is doing here when he, when he says this, he's, he's saying that every word that comes from the mouth of God, it, it's like it recalls this theme that God's words are not idle, but are to be received as commands. And not only that, but it emphasizes the fact that we need to obey God's commands. We need to live by God's commands. And we need to rely upon God's commands. And see, for Jesus, the divine eternal implications of what's going on here, in fact, the weight of the world rested upon his obedience to the Father. And for him, being obedient meant being, uh, sorry, for being obedient becomes more important than being well-fed. Uh, and second, the second test, all right? What we see happening here, we see that since the first had failed, the devil now takes him to the highest point of the temple, and he does something here that only a wild and cunning serpent would do. He twists scripture. You see, back in verse 4, Jesus kicked kicked it up a notch. When tempted, he then relied on the word of God for his strength and his sustenance. He said, it is written. And it's funny. Let's think about it for a second, okay? Let's just think about it for one quick second. Think about a moment in history a very critical moment when Satan tried and successfully tempted God's creation, Adam and Eve in the garden. For many, of you know, for many of you who know your Bible, you remember back to Genesis 3. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
No, said the woman, but God told me that you must not eat from the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden or you will die. And then the kill shot is made. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Cosmic chaos ensued. Again, Satan says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. In the previous temptation, Jesus fought back relying on the word of God and now Satan plays him at his game and he says, yeah, but it is written as well. Now, I want to just be honest and real with you, okay? I want to give you an example of how Satan, for me, takes scripture and twists it, right? The first time I preached earlier this year, I, I revealed to everyone that I have a fear of flying. It's, 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 it's difficult to get on a plane. And I find Psalm 139 is a, an immense comfort to me when I'm in that situation. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Surely this day you will make your bed in the depths. Surely this day you will make your bed in the depths. See, this is a beautiful psalm, right? That brings me immense comfort. But I get to that one line and I can, I can hear Satan saying, you know what, this is the day you're going to make your bed in the depths. And he's taking scripture and twisting it for me. So guys, the struggle is real. But what Satan's doing here with Christ is he's misquoting Psalm 91. I mean, in a nutshell, Psalm 91 is a protection song about the ability of God to protect his people. And it's in this, this promise that we should rest in God, not test him. And so although Satan is partially quoting Psalm 91, he takes the basic meaning of the text and applies it for his own selfish gain. If he can just convince Jesus to throw himself down, Jesus will prove, based on the promise in this text, that he is the Messiah. But Christ never intended for him to reveal his divinity outside of the cross. So Satan's taking a truth, a fundamental truth in the scripture, as he has in the past, and he's twisting it and trying to get Christ to do something for his own selfish gain. And what, is, what does Jesus say, verse 6 and 7? It is also written... Do you see what's happening here? There's this lobbying, there's this volleying going back and forth. Christ is relying upon scripture. Satan is saying, yeah, well, I see that, but what about this? And then Christ is like, well, well, yes, but I see this. Well, Jesus just always comes up on top. Temptation, scripture, temptation, scripture, temptation, scripture. And we need to take note of this, okay? We gotta take note of this. Because what we see happening here is this beautiful example that Jesus places upon the authority, the reliability, and the memorization of the word of God. Every, every time he's tempted, he goes back to scripture. Every time it is written. But now remember, Matthew is not giving us a blueprint for how we can fight against temptation. But we can draw inspiration from this. All right? If it's good for Christ, let it be good for us. If he soaks in the word, let us soak in the word. We need to commit it to memory, trust in its authority, and depend on its reliability. Because we are going to be tempted. 
You're going to leave here today before you get home and something is going to get you. We are going to be tempted. But temptation first starts with the desire. And after it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. James 1.15. The question is, okay, if there's any question that I want you to struggle with today, is this. Who are you going to be obedient to? Christ's call for you to be holy or your temptation? By tempting him this way, like I said, Satan was trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross. But let this not go unnoticed. This was an artificially created scenario that Satan put the pieces into place just to get Jesus to stumble and reveal his identity. He didn't. Praise God. Praise God. Christ would do this at a different spot. He would reveal his purpose and his divinity at the cross. A place of pain and yet hope. A place of defeat and yet victory. A place of immense sorrow and yet unbridled joy. And Calvary, as we look upon the cross, let us be reminded of the cost that Christ paid. We look to the cross, but let us not forget the beginning Isaiah 53 says Jesus was pierced because of a rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities. Do you think about that? Do you think that he was crushed for our iniquities? And I don't know about you, but I'd rather have someone like Christ before me and God than for me to come in my own merit before God and say, you know, I've, I've ticked all the boxes, Lord. <clears throat> His third test. Idolatry. And just a reminder, idolatry is simply this, okay? Let me, if I can define it for you in a short manner. It's taking something and making it the ultimate thing. So that by everything, we put our value, our worship, our praise, and our joy in it instead of God. Do you know in Scripture there's a, a lot of adjectives that are used to describe God? There's love, there's mercy compassion, the list goes on and on. But in all 66 books, there's only one that's used three times in a row. Holy, holy, holy. You never read that God is love, love, love. You never read that he's mercy, mercy, mercy. But you read that he's holy, holy, holy. Look at Isaiah 6 describes the angels who stand before the throne of God. Isaiah describes them this way. They each have six wings. With two, they cover their faces. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. Right? These angels before the throne of God cannot stand to look directly at God because of his holiness. They just, they cannot, they just can't do it. Because he is holy, holy, holy. And now Satan, one who was created, one who knew and knows the authority and power of God, is looking down upon his creator, saying, just worship me, and I will give you everything. Like, are you guys getting it? Like, this is, this is crazy, right? To, to look at God and say, just, you created me, but if you just worship me, I will give you, hmm, yeah. We're reminded in 1 Peter 5 that Satan is like a, a, a roaring lion looking for someone to devour now, Satan knows that he can't attack the holiness of God. But maybe, just maybe, he can attack the, 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 the God-man 
the, the human side of the God-man. Maybe. If Jesus just had to worship Satan, it would mean that he valued creation more than the creator and that he valued the physical kingdoms of the earth more than the eternal kingdom of God. In effect, Satan was saying this, give to me what you're only supposed to give to the Father, and in doing so, I will give you all things that are rightly owned by the Father. That's what he's doing. And what does Christ say? Away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Oh, praise the Lord. Israel was commanded unequivocally to worship God and God alone. And it doesn't get any simpler than the first commandment. Do not have any other gods besides me. Now, just before he was stoned to death, Stephen, not Steve Bray, um, (laughs) stands before the ruling religious authorities of his time and says to them, Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, that is Moses. Instead, they pushed him aside and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Then they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. They even made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol and were celebrating with their hands what they had made. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. Had he have worshipped Satan, his obedience to the Father would have crumbled. And not only that, like I said, he would put more value in the physical kingdoms of the earth than the eternal kingdom of God. But let us not overlook this small yet really fascinating point in this verse. Satan leaves him, but for a time. He's going to come back, and we know he comes back. That cunning serpent, we know he comes back. He will try one last time to destroy the one who came to bring life, to destroy the one who would provide a solution to this predicament that we're in, this sin predicament. You see, for Christ, obedience was, was paramount. For God's plan of salvation, obedience was tantamount. Yeah, Jesus could have stepped down from the cross, but he remained obedient to death, even death on a cross. He began his ministry in obedience. He went through obedient moments throughout all of his ministry. And he ended his ministry in obedience. So what's the point? Where do we go from here? Well, simply put, Jesus is better. If you want to write down a tagline for today, it's that Jesus is better. But let me break this down into three subpoints for you, okay? So we read in Hebrews 4, and oh, I love this passage. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because in every way he was tempted and yet did not sin. And as our high priest, Jesus becomes the true and ultimate mediator between us and God. And this, my friends, is a good thing. Not only would he offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, but he would do so fully and truly understanding our weaknesses, understanding our fallen nature. Unlike the earthly temple priests of the time who would only get a glimpse into the fallen nature of humankind, we have Jesus who can identify with all of our weaknesses. He could overcome all of them and yet remain obedient and yet without sin. My friends, we have no hope in the world of overcoming temptation outside of Christ. We don't. We, we, we absolutely don't. Where would we turn, right? Where would we turn? Because no one else has ever lived, living an obedient life. And no one else has ever lived who will face temptation and remain perfect. Because we're weak. In our own strength, we are very, very weak. But yet he overcame 
right? He overcame. In our disobedience, he remains obedient. And so let us take every opportunity when we face trials and temptations that we do so through prayer, petition, and submission to the one who is perfectly obedient. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Point two, because of Christ's obedience, he is now our source of eternal salvation. In Hebrews 5 now, going from Hebrews 4 to 5, we're told that since he, being Jesus, remained obedient, he now becomes our source of eternal salvation. But why? Why is he now our source of eternal salvation? One word, purity. I love how scripture complements scripture. When we look at this text, we see a Messiah, a Savior, our God, suffering as we suffer. Again, going back to Hebrews 5, we read that he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, that's kind of a confusing statement. How could Christ learn obedience through the things which he suffered? Well, let me give you some John Piper. This does not mean he moved from being disobedient to being obedient. It means he moved from being untested to being tested and proven, as we see in Matthew 4. He moved from obeying without any suffering to obeying through unspeakable suffering. It means that the gold of his natural purity was put in the crucible. It was melted down, and with white-hot pain, he, had, he learned, so that he could learn from his experience what suffering is and prove that his purity would persevere. My friends, we need a perfect Savior. We need a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sins. Anything else is just self-defeating. When we read the Gospels, we need to see this. We need to see that through Jesus' temptation and sufferings, he learned pure obedience. In other words, God made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. Only upon him do we have a glimmer of hope. Only upon him do we, can we stand. Without him, we can't. Point three, last point. Through his obedience, we learn of the importance of scripture in our daily lives. And if we're being totally honest with ourselves, guys, we don't spend enough time in scripture. I don't. All right, I don't know how about you feel, but I don't. How many of us read our Bibles for the sake of simply just putting a tick beside it, as in our daily routines? Right, Lord, I've read Scripture for 10 minutes, now I'm good. And I'll be the first one to say it, I am guilty of this. And what do we expect when temptation comes our way? We fall into it. We beat ourselves up. Why? We have no one to blame but ourselves when we fall into temptation and when we succumb to it. He's given us his word. He's given us Christ, and he's given us his spirit. Three ways that we can even remotely fight against temptation. His word, Christ, and his spirit. Yes, he is God, but yes, he was a man, and as a man, he knew full well what it was like to be tempted. So I plead with you, my friends, please, when temptation comes your way, run to scripture, run to God, run to Christ, run to him. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And where we will fail, because we will fail, Jesus succeeds. And I'm telling you guys, I want you to remember this as you walk out. You're going to walk out of here today. And quite possibly before you get home, you are going to fall in temptation. But when Satan knocks you down onto one knee, just get out on both. Get down to both. Come before God. Run to him. Cast your anxieties upon him. Cast your temptations upon him. 
because in every way, shape, and form, he was tempted. And we do not have a high priest who cannot empathize with all of our weaknesses. So how do we tackle temptation? Turn to Christ. As easy as it sounds, maybe it's more difficult than it sounds, but turn to him. Turn to his word. Soak in his word. I get the music team to come back up. Let's pray.